Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. From the point of view of our brain, the world is divided into two domains, which we call the peripersonal and the extrapersonal. The peripersonal is the three-dimensional space around you that's within arm's reach. The extrapersonal space is everywhere else in the universe that's outside arm's reach. And that represents things that you don't own, you don't have, and you don't control. These two spaces are processed by the brain in very different ways. From the brain's perspective, there's a fundamental difference between resources that you have and those that you don't have but need. And so the brain created uh, two very different sets of circuits to manage the peripersonal versus the extrapersonal. Now, interacting with the extrapersonal space uh, is coordinated by one brain chemical, and that is dopamine. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Daniel, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work because I stumbled upon your book, uh, The Molecule of More, when I was browsing through Amazon. And when I saw that somebody had actually done a deep dive into the neuroscience of dopamine, which impacts our addictions to things like Facebook um, and all the things that we do almost every day, I thought, okay, I have to talk to this guy. But uh, before we get into all of that, I want to ask what I think is a very relevant question, given the nature of your background. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? That's a difficult question. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think of myself as not fitting into the, the categories. I think that the closest thing that would come to my social group uh, would be the geeks um, because, <laughs> yeah, uh, I love to read. Uh, that was my favorite thing in the world. But it, it wasn't quite a geek group. Um, you know, I, I just had a small group of best friends um, we, we were definitely not jocks, but I'm not quite sure we'd fit in with the, uh, the geeks, but, but my defining characteristic growing up was that I love to read. 
Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because I think that that's like a social group. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're, there's a British TV show called The Inbetweeners where these guys are all really good friends and they basically are interested in, in meeting girls and doing all the things that any normal person should do in high school. And it's just a you know comedy of errors every episode <laughs> that basically unfolds. Um, you know, early on, you, you, this, this love for reading, did that start very, very young? Was it something your parents influenced? And were there particular subjects that you read that, you know, led you down this path? Because in a million years, I never thought I would be doing what I'm doing. I mean, I, I think I shared a love for reading, but I hated English classes because I thought there was a big difference between real writing and analyzing literature. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's hard to say why it is that we do what we do. Um, I, I think that the way the human mind is developed is that we look for reasons in our environment. And I might say, you know, there are aspects of my childhood that were difficult. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. My mother worked. I was on my own a lot. And that led me to reading. I, I think in some ways that's a satisfying answer, but I suspect it's wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think that a lot more is determined by our genetics um, than we like to admit, because if something is determined by genetics, it doesn't really have a meaning. It's simply a fact. Uh, yeah. and, and that's not quite as satisfying. But um, my mother was a reader. She loved to read. Um, and I did have a lot of time on my own when no one was around. And, you know, if you love to read, you know how it is. It, it, it can be the best thing in the world. It, it yeah. takes you off in, into your own world, which is, I think, especially important when you're a kid. Uh, it, it opens up your uh, experience to all kinds of different things. And, um, you know, being that sort of um, somewhat of a geek, I, I was into science fiction. And I thought that I would uh, probably end up as a scientist or an engineer. And um, the way I made it into psychiatry is really a very roundabout route. Um, but it's something I, I did not expect growing up. Yeah. Did your parents encourage uh, any particular career paths? And, and, you know, how in the world do you end up doing work particularly related to this? Because I think that this is such a prevalent thing in our lives that we uh, completely overlook. I do want to go back to the genetic component because I think that there's something really fascinating about that. And it, it flies in the face of a lot of personal development literature and challenges sort of the assumptions of, of you know, our ability to do anything. Well, you know, there were a lot of lawyers in my family. My father was a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer. And uh, so it just seemed natural to me to be interested in the law. Um, one day, uh, one summer, I, I worked in my father's law firm when I was in high school. And it was uh, the most boring thing I could possibly imagine. And so that went right out the window. Uh, I had no idea how tedious the day-to-day -day work of a lawyer was. Uh, reading through material that was just um, a very, very little interest to me. So that went out the window. And, and I thought, well, you know, I'm good at science. I'm good at math. Um, let's think about that route. But I never had anything um, specific in mind. When I went off to college, I went to a sort of unusual place. It's a college called St. John's College. And they don't have any textbooks, lectures, tests or exams. Um, and there are no electives either. Every single student in that college does the same thing. And that is that uh, we read the great books in the original source. And we got together in small groups and talked about them. 
So it really was not setting me out on any kind of trajectory. Uh, I went there simply because I thought I've got to read these books. Um, this is the best way to be educated, to train your mind. And whatever it is I do after that, this will probably be a good preparation. Yeah. Well, I think that I do remember hearing that about St. John somewhere. I might have read it in a book, but there are numerous questions that come from that. Uh, why do you think that that kind of learning isn't more prevalent uh, in our education system? Because I think that many of the subjects that, you know, are in many of the things you've talked, you just alluded to are often foundations for living a good life and, and having a fulfilling life as an adult. And yet I can tell you that if anybody had tried to get me to take one of these classes when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, I would have wrote it off as all new age bullshit. Even the work that I do, I would have dismissed as new age bullshit when I was an undergrad uh, because I was so sort of driven to achieve by societal standards. Uh, so I wonder, you know, one, why isn't that more prevalent? But two, more importantly, what is the impact that that ends up having on adult life, not just for yourself, but even your classmates? I, I think that um, I think that the re I think it should be more prevalent. I think we should be teaching this way uh, starting in high school. Um, you know, reading the most important writers. Um, we we read the Western tradition, but of course, also there's the Eastern tradition, all kinds of traditions. Um, we started out reading. Plato and Aristotle, and uh, we read um, the Bible and the Church Fathers. We read the Existentialists and the Enlightenment thinkers, and we finally read the modern philosophers. And I think that a lot of people would say that the things that we learned were useless because <laughs> <laughs> those ancient philosophers were simply wrong. And we know better now, and why not learn the things that are right rather than the things that are wrong. And I, I understand that point of view, but I, I think it's misguided because I think it's based on the idea that high school and college should be about absorbing useful facts. But I don't think that the brain, I don't think that kids' brains are ready to absorb useful facts at that age because they haven't learned how to learn. Uh -huh. They haven't learned what is the basis of critically reading something, understanding it, and making contributions to knowledge. When I uh, interviewed at St. John's, um, the interviewer asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to become a scientist. And she said, what are you doing here at St. John's? Uh, you know, we, we learn philosophy, we learn uh, history, we learn literature. And I said, well, you also, uh, you know, students also take math and science every single semester. And she said, yeah, but it's the ancient stuff. How is that going to help you as a scientist today? Uh, she knew the answer, but she wanted to know if I knew the answer. And I did. Um, I said that Newton famously said, the reason I can see so far is because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I, I wanted to do more than just work in a laboratory. Uh, I, I hope that someday I would make some very small contribution to science and I thought that if I was going to do that, I really need to know the bedrock on which the science rested. Uh, I needed to start with the uh, ancient classical philosophers, find out what they had to say about thinking, about the process of science, uh, about simply about how human beings understand the world. And um, I, I'm pretty sure I made the right decision. 
Um, I, I kind of feel like there's not a day that goes by when I don't think about my great books education. Now, you know, people at St. John's go on to do a whole lot of different things. Going into medical school is not rare. A lot of people go into law school. People go into finance. Um, and, and some people go into um, crunchy, chewy things. You know, some, some people start little tiny bookstores um, or um, they, they start campsites. Who knows? Because all they want to do is sit around and read philosophy and literature. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I, but I, I, think it, I think in reality, it's a very, very practical way to learn. Because most people who are interested in an education plan to go to graduate school. And graduate school is vocational school. That's where you learn how to do a job. I think that undergraduate work should be about expanding your mind and training your mind to think well and critically. Uh, well, it's funny because just hearing you say that reminds me of something Naval Ravikant said. He had this you know, podcast uh, that he came out of this ridiculously long tweet storm uh, about how to get rich. And you know, he talked about reading being the foundation of all knowledge. But the thing that struck me most, despite being an avid reader myself, was his uh, suggestion to read the original text in a given field. So he said, yeah. rather than reading 100 business books, read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. And yeah. You know, I, despite being a C minus economic student, decided to take on that challenge. And it's definitely not an easy read because the language is archaic. Uh, it's, it, you know, you have to read it very slowly. And I'm, I'm a pretty quick reader. But what was shocking to me was even after getting through about 280 pages, and I, I still have yet to finish it, I was able to literally look at how we produce the podcast and run our business through the lens of the wealth of nations. And I could explain it in that context. Um, and I'd never seen it that way. And, you know, when I took an undergraduate economics class, all I basically remembered was that, you know, supply and demand determine price. Yes, that's, that's, that's such a good insight. You know, when you, when you get information from a textbook or from a lecture, you're the baby bird that's being fed pre-digested worms. Um, and, and, and it's a lot easier to eat pre-digested worms than it is to read Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. But the problem is that when you're just simply fed these facts, you forget them as soon as the exam is over. Um, they're for one purpose, one purpose only, and that's for getting a good grade. When you struggle through the original source, I think two things happen. One is it's like a bodybuilder lifting weights. As you pointed out, it's really hard. And so you bulk up uh, the ability of your brain to make sense of difficult things. But the other thing is that, that since you're the mother worm, uh, since you're finding that, uh, I'm sorry, the mother bird, you're finding that worm, you're pulling it out of the ground, you're working so hard, you're trying to get in the head of one of the most brilliant people in history, you retain it. And as you pointed out, you, you start to think like Adam Smith by reading the original stuff. And um, I think that that's just the way life works. The more you put into something, the harder you work at it, the more you're going to take out of it. And so often people are looking for shortcuts. Um, and learning through lectures and textbooks is one of those shortcuts. And I just don't think you take away the same thing as you do struggling with those original sources. Yeah. 
so what in the world led you from this down to med school to, of all things, studying dopamine and, and the molecule of more? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, um, so I finished St. John's. And I knew a lot about the great books, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, uh, which I probably shouldn't have been surprised after that kind of um, education. <laughs> uh, so I was kind of at a loose end. Um, and um, a friend of mine at St. John's uh, was from Japan. And he told me, 
This was um, this was in 1985. That was the height of the bubble economy in Japan. Um, I don't know if you remember much of that, but it was pretty insane. Uh, the land that the palace stood on in Tokyo was worth more than the state of California during that time. Wow. Yeah, it was an amazing time, and, and Japan was just exploding in terms of its exports. And um, the language of international business was English. Um, when Japanese businessmen would do business with Filipino businessmen, uh, they would speak in English, and, and that was the case all over. And so uh, my friend told me that um, any American with a college degree can get off an airplane in Japan and get a job. And so I, I, you know, as 20 something years old, I thought that sounded fantastic. So, um, I bought a one way ticket to Japan, went with a friend and we, um, we got jobs as English teachers. And I did that for about two years. And, you know, while I was there, I, I didn't lose my love for reading and I would just read all kinds of things. I, I developed a love for PG Woodhouse while I was there. I don't know if you ever read him, but. No. Uh, um, he, he's, he's absolutely delightful. He's kind of a comedy writer. Uh, but I ran across a book called Man and His Symbols by Carl Jung. Um, that Carl Jung is a very, very difficult writer, but Man and His Symbols is written to be a little bit more accessible to a lay audience. And I fell in love with it. I, I felt like it explained so much um, the way it explained human behavior and human experience through ancient mythology and symbolism. And I decided that I was going to become a Jungian analyst. Um, so I came back to the United States and I went to see one of my uh, professors uh, who had been a mentor of mine when I was uh, at college because uh, I wanted to bounce the idea off of him. And he said, go to medical school. He said that so much of the advances that are taking place in understanding the mind are biological through the brain. And um, you really need a medical degree if you want to study it um, in, in the 20th century. Um, and I agreed with him, and that's what led me to go to medical school and ultimately become a psychiatrist. Wow. So <clears throat> what I wonder, um, particularly as a psychiatrist, having sort of spent time in a uh, culture like Japan, particularly when you're there for two years, I only know this because I spent six months in Brazil, you have this sort of immersion into a culture as opposed to seeing it from the outside. Uh, what do you notice as, as cultural differences, particularly when it comes to this idea of satisfaction and, and living a more rewarding life, which I, I think will make a perfect segue into the whole idea of the molecule of more? Um, what, what did you notice as differences in the way that people, uh, you know, display ambition? Mm -hmm. You know, Jap uh, you America is much more focused on the individual and Japan is much more focused on the group. So when we talk about ambition in America, we're talking about ourselves getting ahead. But ambition in Japan is about the company getting ahead. Um, everything is uh, much more collective. And, you know, some of the stuff seems kind of silly to us. Um, the, the companies, everybody will get together in the morning and do exercises on the roof of the building or in the courtyard. Um, after work, um, instead of socializing with your friends, you socialize with your coworkers. 
Uh, you go on vacation with the company. Uh, it's very, very much of a group atmosphere. And, and I think that that sounds a little bit creepy to a Western sensibility. Um, and, and it was, it, it was a little bit strange for me, but I think that they have something that we don't and they don't have the same kind of alienation that is so common in Western cultures. Um, it happens in Japan. Um, but it's less common. And I think that overall, there's much more a feeling of belonging. I think it's something that the Japanese prize uh, a great deal. You can see it throughout their culture, uh, the importance of belonging. And, and I think it gives them a great deal of happiness. Yeah. Well, I think I remember uh, it was either Okinawa or some part of Japan that was one of the blue zones in Dan Butner's book. And, and he mentioned specifically the the fact that they have these deep friendships and they have the whole ikigai thing, like a reason to get up in the morning uh, <clears throat> long after they're, you know, well into their, their, you know, late years in life. And somehow they ended up because of that, they live for such a long time. Yeah, that, that it, it, it's hard to know why they live for such a long time. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with diet. Um, in Japan, public transportation is very common, and that's actually a form of exercise. Uh, people who take public transportation on average weigh less than people who drive. So um, they, they eat a healthier diet. They're more likely to exercise, and um, it, it may also just be their genetics. Yeah. So what, uh, what, what actually prompted your exploration uh, of dopamine to the point where you wanted to write a book about it? Like what were the seeds that, you know, what planted the seed for this idea of all the things you could write about? Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm in academia and so I have to write, you know, the saying publish or perish. Yeah. My dad's a professor. Um, and, yeah. Uh, specifically, I've got to write scientific articles for peer reviewed journals. Um, they take a long time. Um, if I'm if I'm doing a piece of original research, it can be two or three years to crank out one paper. And if I'm lucky, a few dozen people will actually read that paper. Um, I've written papers that I think that less than ten people have written. Uh, and 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 like I said, it can take years to get these things out. But you got to do it. You got to move up the ranks. Um, and I became an assistant professor, an associate professor, and finally a full professor. When I became a full professor, it was a really important moment in my life because that's the end. It, there's nowhere to go along that particular road. You know, there's other roads of advancement, but that particular road, that's the end. And that had never happened to me before in my life. Um, it was always, you accomplish one thing and then it's on to the next. It was an absolutely wonderful, peaceful, satisfying, liberating feeling. And I decided um, that I was going to write something that people were actually going to read for a change. I wasn't <laughs> just going to spend my time cranking out something that nobody really cared about. Um, and I, I thought about so, so what do I know about that people would be interested in? And it did not take me long to come up with the idea of dopamine. Yeah. Um, it, it's something I'm familiar with because I've done work with addictions. That's how I got most of my exposure to it. Um, and, and it's just an absolutely fascinating brain chemical um, that, that is absolutely the most sexy thing going on inside the head. 
Yeah. Well, let's uh, let, let's get into into what is happening in their brain. I mean, I think that, like I said, this is one of those books that I, I just sat through in one sit and tore through in two sittings because um, I I could see so many of these things playing out in my life on almost a daily basis. But you know, you early on in the book, you say this about dopamine: it rewards you when you obey it and makes you suffer when you don't. It's the source of creativity and further along the spectrum, madness. It's the key to addiction and the path to recovery. It's the bit of biology that makes an ambitious executive sacrifice everything in pursuit of success that makes successful actors and entrepreneurs and artists, you know, keep working long after they have all the money and fame they ever dreamed of. And that makes a satisfied husband or wife risk everything for the thrill of someone else. And I think why that struck me so much is the the sort of contrast, you know, the one extreme to another, you know, you makes you fall in love, but it's also the very thing that makes you cheat. Um, so let's let's get into kind of, you know, how this happens, like what is actually happening um, inside of the brain when we get these dopamine hits, whether it's from, you know, accomplishing some big goal or getting a like on Facebook. Well, first of all, let me just say how happy I am to hear you say that you recognized yourself in this book. Um, that's how we wrote it. We wanted people to read this and say, oh, my God, they're talking about me. Um, and, and we have gotten uh, some nice feedback in that area. But let me just give you the big picture of dopamine. Um, from the point of view of our brain, the world is divided into two domains, which we call the peripersonal and the extrapersonal. The peripersonal is the three-dimensional space around you that's within arm's reach. And this represents things that you own, have, and control. Um, the extrapersonal space is everywhere else in the universe that's outside arm's reach. And that represents things that you don't own, you don't have, and you don't control. There are these two spaces are processed by the brain in very different ways. And the reason for that is that we've got a saying, either you have it or you don't. From an evolutionary perspective, that can easily become either you have it or you're dead. From the brain's perspective, there's a fundamental difference between resources that you have, such as food, tools, shelter, reproductive partners, and those that you don't have but need. And so the brain created uh, two very different sets of circuits to manage the peripersonal versus the extrapersonal. So the circuits that manage the peripersonal, the things within arm's reach, in the book we call the here and now neurotransmitters, that's brain chemicals, because they deal with things that, that you can work with right here in the present moment. And that involves um, enjoying things, using things, consuming things, and appreciating things. Um, it, it involves um, interpersonal relationships. Those take place in the here and now. Emotions, um, sensory experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Now, interacting with the extrapersonal space uh, is coordinated by one brain chemical, and that is dopamine. Um, dopamine is about the things that we want, but we don't have. And it gives us the tools that we need to interact with those things. So um, dopamine gives us desire. It gives us motivation uh, to go out and get it, the, the, uh, the mental energy um, that makes us feel excitement and enthusiasm. It gives us per perseverance, 
Dopamine is what keeps us going when we encounter obstacles. Um, things that we don't have uh, in some ways are abstract. Um, I, I have the shirt I'm wearing now, but a new shirt that I want to buy or a shirt I want to wear tomorrow that's in my closet is abstract. I can't see it. I can't hear it. I can't taste it or touch it. It's just in my imagination. And that's another function dopamine has. It, it helps us think about things that don't exist in the here and now. And these could be shirts and closets. They could be unicorns. They could be the universal law of gravitation. Uh, dopamine is responsible for all of these kinds of abstractions, which ultimately turn into uh, very useful tools for helping us maximize our future resources. And dopamine is all about the future because anything that is in the extrapersonal space outside of our arm's reach is something we can't physically interact with in the present. It's going to happen in the future. And so really, if we want to sum it all up, it, it, it's what I said just a moment ago. The purpose of dopamine is to maximize future resources. It makes us want things, makes us excited and enthusiastic. It gives us the energy and the perseverance, and it allows us to think hypothetically and abstractly in order to develop complex plans to get them. Wow. Wow. Uh, so I want to look at this through the lens of a, a couple of human experiences, because um, you actually talk about a few of them in the book. Uh, and I, I want to start with love, because I think what uh, you said about love really struck me, because I, I just saw that I was like, oh, anytime I actually thought I was in love, I was actually infatuated. And I, I think that what I really loved that you said was, you know, said our brains are programmed to crave the unexpected and thus look to the future, where every exciting possibility begins. But when anything, including love, becomes familiar, that excitement slips away and new things draw our attention. And then you, you concluded that by saying a romance built on dopamine is a thrilling, short-lived roller coaster ride, but our brain chemistry gives us the tools to move down the path that leads to more companionate love. And so, so what I wonder is, you know, why is it that um, even though we have the, the brain chemistry to get down this path to companionate love, you know, we, we chase this sort of um, romance built on, on dopamine, you know, and, and we mistake it for love because I can tell you firsthand that I have. Uh, and I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And let me start out by taking a simpler example. Um, let's think about buying a new, um, a new cell phone. Um, when you decide you need a new cell phone, uh, the first thing most of us do is go to the internet and start researching. And that may be accompanied by a whole lot of excitement as we look at all the different features that might be available to us and um, we might start imagining all the different things we can do and, and perhaps ways in which our lives will be easier or better. Um, a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest. The cell phone is in the extra personal space because we don't have it. And dopamine is coordinating uh, what's going on. When we get the cell phone, everything changes. All of that excitement and enthusiasm goes away. Um, Sometimes we may even experience what's called buyer's remorse. Um, maybe we should not have spent $700 on a, on a silly phone. Um, it, it, it doesn't give us that same level of excitement and enthusiasm that anticipating it did. And the reason for that is that once the phone moved from the extra personal to the peripersonal, dopamine no longer had a role in processing our feelings about it. It shifted down into the here and now chemicals. Um, and, and that's simply inevitable. Uh, it's just like if something is to the right of you, you're primarily going to view it with one eye. And if it's to the left, the other. Uh, dopamine only processes things that we do not have. So if we apply that to love, um, when we become infatuated with someone, we start to idealize them. Um, they're not a human being. They suddenly become <laughs> the perfection of femininity or masculinity, right? Yeah. 
and, and we think, oh my God, if I could just win this person, my life will be absolutely different. Uh, I will be happy every day and I will be as a God on earth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we do win them. And, and, and it's like, okay, this person actually is a human being uh, full of imperfections. Um, you know, they, they chew with their mouth open and leave the cap off the toothpaste tube. And I'm, I'm getting crazy here. Um, it goes from the extrapersonal dopamine to the peripersonal here and now. And, and, and it's inevitable. Um, love. Um, it, so, so we, we give these kinds of loves two different names. The dopaminergic extrapersonal idealized love is passionate love. Um, and then the here and now peripersonal having kind of love is called companionate love. Uh, and, and of course, that's related to the word companion, meaning friend. And if you're able to successfully make that transition from insane passion to companionate love, it, it's actually a very valuable thing to have done because now you have a long-term partner. Yeah. You've got someone whose life is going to become deeply entwined with your own, which is a very satisfying thing to have. You've got someone who's always there for you, who've, who's always got your back, somebody you can rely on and trust. And so when it first happens, when you first shift down from dopaminergic, passionate love to here and now companionate love, it kind of feels like the party's over. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's terribly unpleasant. But if you stick with it and you work on that relationship, it, it potentially becomes the most important, most rewarding, most valuable thing in your life. Yeah. Well, I guess that raises one other question about this for me. Um, and, and that is why, what is going on in the brains of, of the people who cheat? Is there like a dopamine imbalance or do they just, a deprivation that causes them to continually want the thrill to go and look for somebody else? Well, yeah, you know, infidelity is very common. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, no matter how good we have it, we always want something more. And I think that that's just the way we evolved. I think it's probably pretty good for our survival as a species and pretty bad for our happiness as an individual. But um, we're stuck with it. There's nothing we can do about it. And so sometimes um, going after more um, is good for us. Um, sometimes it, it's got minimal consequences, such as when we eat that second donut but sometimes it, it can have devastating consequences, um, such as when we're unfaithful and put a long-term relationship at risk. So I think that we go through life to some degree um, needing to be aware of these dopaminergic urges and um, realizing that they are kind of primitive emotional urges and that it's necessary for us to use our sophisticated ability to reason to test these urges and say, is this really something I want to, um, I want to do? And if the answer is no, then we're faced with a very hard task of fighting against our dopamine uh, circuits. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, we often fail, such as when we uh, cheat on a diet or cheat in a relationship or drink more than we should um, or all kinds of other things. Uh, it's hard to do. 
but it's not impossible. And I think the first step is recognizing that we do have these forces inside our brains that are looking out for the species, but do not have our best interests at heart. Uh, and sometimes we've got to take an oppositional stance towards our own brain. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, you mentioned alcohol and, and you know, you have a section on, on drugs where you talk, say that impulsive behavior occurs when too much value is placed on immediate pleasure and not enough on long-term consequences. Now, uh, you know, look, I, I've, I've, you know, done my fair share of recreational drug use. I'm far from an addict. So what, what happens, you know, what is the difference between me, you know, somebody who can recreationally try something uh, and not, you know, get addicted to it versus the addict? Like what is going on in terms of dopamine there? Yeah, very, very difficult question. Um, it, it's a lot more than dopamine. First of all, we don't really know the answer to that question. Um, we wish we did. Um, what we do know, though, is that when you do use these drugs, even though uh, there are a lot of people who don't get addicted, they do put themselves at risk of being addicted. In some ways, it's like driving... Um, 75 miles an hour down the highway. Um, yeah, you know, many of us have done that. Um, many of us have lived to tell the tale, but many have crashed. Uh, and why is that? Uh, was it that their car wasn't as good? Were they not as attentive? Was it the weather? We don't really know. Uh, and, and it's the same with drug use, but you do roll the dice by using these addictive drugs. And um, here's what happens. When you do things that support your evolutionary survival, eating when you're hungry, drinking when you're thirsty, um, having sex to reproduce the species, your brain rewards you with a hit of dopamine. Uh, sometimes it's a big hit, and sometimes it is a little hit. Uh, if you're walking down the street and you look down and you saw a dollar bill on the ground, uh, you'd get a hit of dopamine. Um, that would be exciting because it would make your future a tiny bit better. If, on the other hand, you saw a $100 bill on the ground, you would get a much bigger hit of dopamine uh, because it makes your future um, that much better. Now, um, if you had the choice of... Um, if you had the choice of doing something that gave you a small hit of dopamine, like picking up a dollar bill compared to a big hit of dopamine, like picking up a $100 bill or going on a date with the person you're in love with, you're always going to choose the bigger hit of dopamine. In fact, that's frequently how we make decisions. Uh, our brain does a calculation based on what's going to give us the most dopamine. The reason why drugs are so dangerous is because they give an enormous hit of dopamine. Um, we write in the book, they're, they're like a guided missile um, that hits the dopamine center of the brain with a chemical blast in a way that is very difficult to get from ordinary behaviors. And, and so it begins to give us the idea that using drugs is better than anything else. And that's why addicts will sacrifice all kinds of things, their job, their family, their homes, their health in order to pursue this addictive drug, because by smashing the dopamine um, center harder than any natural behaviors can, it's tricking the brain into thinking, this is the best thing for your survival and your success. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, I mean, speaking of success, one thing that you say is nothing is ever enough for dopamine. It's the pursuit that matters and the victory, but there's no finish line and never will be. Winning like drugs can be addictive. And, you know, I had a psychologist named Sasha Hines here who was telling me, she said, if you look at the Olympic podium, she said, you'll see something really odd that the person who has won the gold looks thrilled. The person who won the bronze is just happy to be on the podium. And the person who won the silver apparently is miserable because they haven't won the gold. And yeah. and she said that, that that happens because, you know, every time you achieve something, your reference group keeps changing. Suddenly there's a, a new goalpost. And I guess the thing that this is, you know, I figured if anybody could answer this question for me, maybe it's you, is knowing that our, we're hardwired for this biologically, is there any hope of finding some balance between fulfillment and ambition and getting the hell off of this hedonic treadmill? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are right that we are wired never to be satisfied, but we're also wired to be satisfied. We're just talking about a different set of circuits. I think that one mistake people make when they think about their own brains, their own minds, is to view it as a unified entity. Um, when I use the word I, I am hungry, I enjoyed that movie. I think I'm talking about a unified thing, me, this person, my soul, my spirit. But in fact, that's not true. Um, the brain is made up of a collection of semi-autonomous circuits. And in some cases, they cooperate with one another, but in many cases, they compete with one another. And so we do have these dopamine circuits that will push us no matter what, and never let us be satisfied. But we have other sets of circuits that actually can make us satisfied. And so we've got to, we've got to learn how to use our brains skillfully. When we want to be ambitious, when we want to make our life better, um, we've got to engage those dopamine circuits. But if we want to enjoy the fruits of our success, uh, the benefits of all our hard work, We've got to be able to do something else. We've got to be able to come out of our dopamine circuits and go into our here and now circuits. These are circuits that, um, that use chemicals such as endorphin, endocannabinoid, oxytocin. Uh, these are chemicals that give us feelings of fulfillment, satisfaction. And it's a very different kind of feeling. When you get a dopaminergic buzz, it, 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 it's excitement, it's enthusiasm. It's like, wow, the world is about to get a, become a better place. When you get a here and now endorphin oxytocin buzz, it's a lot more touchy-feely. Um, it, it, it's being in the moment. It's experiencing emotion, connections to other people, sensory experiences, it can be deeply fulfilling, but for many highly dopaminergic people, um, maybe people like you and I, people who are very ambitious, um, people who are very cerebral, um, sometimes that touchy-feely fulfillment and satisfaction it is a little bit scary. And so we avoid it, and we never end up truly getting the satisfaction that we work for. Um, the guy who can afford the, um, the lake house may be the guy who's most, most, who's least likely to be able to enjoy it. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because it makes me think of, of, you know, having published two books with a publisher and, you know, people always ask what it's like to be done. And I say that the part <laughs> that I hate the most 
is the day the book comes out. It's literally the most depressing day because suddenly this thing that has, you know, added all this meaning to your life is over. You know, it's almost like a postpartum depression of sorts. Uh, is there, you know, I, I think that, you know, it sounds like we can mitigate that based on, you know, sort of an awareness of, of how this all works. We can. Yeah. And, and, and I know that feeling so well. And I think that uh, not only do you lose something that's precious to you, the anticipation of the publishing date, but then all of a sudden it becomes, okay, what are you going to do next? Yeah. Uh, and, and if it just so happened that what you did before was good, that's even worse because now <laughs> you've got to come up with something even better. And, and, and it's a horrible feeling. Um, one of the things I wrote about in the book is in, in DC, um, there are these top doctor awards that go out every year. Um, and if you win one, it feels great for about 10 seconds until you realize, oh my God, what if I don't get it next year? It, it, I, I'm going to feel ashamed. And, and so, so yeah, there's a real downside to that dopaminergic treadmill. Yeah. But there, there are ways that we can um, strengthen our satisfaction circuits and uh, practice getting into them. Um, and um, it, it's hard. The best way I know how to do it is through meditation and mindfulness. And I think it's, um, it's no mystery why those things are becoming more and more mainstream. They're, they're very much about learning how to live in the present moment. And there's good evidence that people who spend a great deal of time practicing meditation and mindfulness um, do have more responsive endorphin systems, endocannabinoid systems, oxytocin systems. It, it's a lot easier for them to simply be happy. Um, and I think that that's, I, I don't think it's a fad. I think that it's going to be like running. Uh, when it first started out, um, you know, in the 60s, people thought that runners were freaks. You know, where are you running to? What are you running from? Um, but it wasn't a passing fad. And, and now aerobic exercise is very much mainstream. I think we're going to see the same thing with uh, meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. So I, I think the the other part of this that really struck me um, was sort of the role that emotion plays. You, know, you say that the essence of our humanity is our ability to move beyond instinct, to go beyond automatic reactions to our environment. It's the ability to weigh options, to consider higher concepts such as values and principles and then to make a deliberate choice about how to maximize what we believe is good, whether it's love, money, or ennobling the soul, that's dopamine. Um, and then, you know, earlier in the book, you actually call emotion a liability and say that when bold action is required in the midst of chaos, the one who can stay calm, take stock of available resources, and quickly develop a plan is the one who will pull through. But, you know, humans are emotional creatures. We have emotions. You know, we're not sociopathic robots. So, how do you have those two things coexist? Yeah, I think it's it's really a question of um, flexibly shifting in and out of the peripersonal and the extrapersonal in a sophisticated manner. When you are in a crisis, you don't want emotion. You want to be able to think very, very clearly. When you are not in a crisis, when you are in a relaxed atmosphere in the here and now, you do want emotion because emotion helps you to understand the world from a different perspective and it also enriches the world. Um, I, I think that unfortunately, 21st century Westerners 
tend to live their life in a constant crisis. Um, you know, you, you work hard all day long, you go home at the end of the day, and instead of relaxing, living in the here and now, you get on social media um, to catch up on all the things you don't know because who knows, uh, something really important could be out there and you better not miss it. Or you create posts or, or blog entries that are going to get likes uh, because if you sit still, the world is going to pass you by and everyone's going to forget about you and you're going to become a failure. So we're living in this constant crisis mode of fear of missing out. Um, and we never shift down into, uh, let's see what my emotions are doing. Let's just see how I feel about these things. And I think that by doing that, we're missing out on half of our life. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I have two, uh, you know, close to final questions for you about this. So, obviously we need dopamine to achieve and, you know, it plays a big role, but, you know, as somebody who's studied this, um, and written a book about it, when you see, you know, sort of situations like Travis at Uber and Silicon Valley companies doing, you know, things that are questionable in terms of their ethics, I mean, even Facebook's privacy policies, maybe, um, and you see the role of dopamine, isn't that, you know, ambition gone unchecked? And, and is that just something that, is impossible to, to, you know, control? I, I think it is. I think it is. Um, we're always going to have bad actors. Um, and, and bad actors are generally driven by dopamine. Um, sometimes they're not trying to accomplish anything. They're just driven by pure hatred. Um, and, and perhaps terrorism is an example of that. But usually they're ambitious people who are trying to amass power or wealth. Um, that's never going to change. We're never going to get rid of these people. And I think that, um, you know, I'm a doctor. Um, and, and there are obviously bad actors in medicine. Um, people who commit fraud. People who victimize patients. Um, all kinds of things. And every time something like that happens... The public demands do something. And so medical boards pass more laws and more regulations that are just loaded as this huge burden on the shoulders of doctors who are not bad actors. Uh, they just want to go out there and help their patients. And so I think we need to be very careful about how we react to bad people who are uh, cutting corners and doing unethical things because of their ambition. The, the temptation is to make new rules to stop them from doing that. But what we forget is that those new rules have the potential to handicap and degrade the lives of millions of people who are just trying to do their best. Um, and, and I think that, that it, it's based on this utopian view that if we have the right number of rules, we can prevent bad things from happening. Um, but, but obviously we can't. And I think that we just have to accept that we live in a world of light and dark. And um, we need to figure out how to manage this. And, and, and maybe it's individuals have to um, turn off their Facebook accounts, um, their Twitter accounts, 
maybe they have to decide, look, it's a huge sacrifice because I do get um, a certain amount of pleasure, but I can see that overall it's having a negative effect on my life. I'm going to walk away from it just like an addict would walk away from heroin. Yeah. So that, that raises sort of two, uh, you know, other questions, um, and we'll, we'll get wrapping up here, but the thing that I wonder, you know, it's funny, you, you probably are familiar with his work because there's some overlap. I just started reading a book this morning, coincidentally, um, called hacking of the American mind by, a you know, doctor slash psych, you know, economic, I think economist named Robert Lustig. And he was talking about how, you know, corporations, media, all these people basically, um, exploit vulnerabilities in the human brain and, you, you know, do so by basically causing us to not understand the difference between pleasure and satisfaction or pleasure and happiness. And I, I felt I couldn't help but think, okay, there's got to be a lot, you know, um, related to dopamine that's going on here. So what, how do companies like Facebook, um, you know, not just technology companies, but even, you know, when we're buying things on Amazon, how are people being exploited or how are the vulnerabilities in their brains being exploited in relation to dopamine? And my roommate had what seems like a, a bizarre question, but one that's fair. Is there any sort of dopamine detox? That <laughs> we go through? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think one of the purest examples of this is the video game loot box. Um, you know, a loot box is uh, something that you buy uh, that will help you perform better in the video game. Maybe it will contain a new weapon. Um, maybe it will contain a new magical power. Who knows? Maybe it will be absolutely worthless. And uh, recently, some regulations were passed against loot boxes because it was absolutely addicting um, children. They were spending thousands of dollars of their parents' money buying these things, which is basically like going to uh, Las Vegas to gamble uh, or buying a lottery ticket. When you're on Facebook, um, you're, you're kind of scrolling through the news feed. And the reason you're doing it is because every once in a while, you come upon something that actually does have the potential to influence your life in a positive way. Or you, uh, you come across something that is relevant to you in some way, which uh, is a powerful stimulator of dopamine. Um, and in some ways, it's like opening loot boxes. You can scroll one screen, two screens, three screens. You never know if the next screen is going to have something that's going to give you dopamine. And so you can't stop. You keep going. And in the old days, when you got down to the bottom of a web page, uh, it would stop. But not anymore. Now we have the infinite screen uh, scroll, hmm. where as you go down, it loads more and more stories and I'm sure we've all been in a position of scrolling through this stuff and saying to ourselves, I'm unhappy. Uh, I don't want to be doing this. Uh, this is making me feel unhappy. And yet we don't stop because there is that sense that maybe the next scroll is going to have that, um, that wonderful story. Uh, and with, with, with buying things on Amazon, it's the opposite of buyer's remorse. Uh, we idealize the things that we do not have. And Amazon, by making it so easy for us to act on that idealization, makes us spend tons of money. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld had this great bit about the, uh, the one-click purpose uh, purchase on Amazon. He says he loves the one-click because he says, if I have to click twice, I don't even want the thing anymore. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> for what it's worth, that's how I ended up with your book, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> One click on Amazon. Well, yeah. thank goodness for that then. Yeah. Wow. Um, so is there a, a detox of any sort, like to, to put this all in check? Yeah, dopamine... Yeah, dopamine detox enjoyed uh, wide popularity for a little while. Uh, there's still a ton of articles out there on the internet. And um, basically, it's, it's taking all of the dopamine triggering things out of your life. Um, social media, uh, junk food, alcohol. Um, you'd be surprised how many things stimulate dopamine. You take that out of your life and uh, it becomes much easier to engage those here and now satisfaction fulfillment circuits in your brain. Uh, and like I said, very, very hard, um, but uh, it, it can lead to a lot of happiness and satisfaction. Okay. So I, I think social media, alcohol, drugs, you know, those kinds of things are the most obvious ones. What are the non-obvious ones that we might not think of uh, as dopamine triggers? Just this is about my personal morbid curiosity. Yeah. So, you know, um, if I'm walking down the street uh, and it's a beautiful autumn day, uh, I'm, I'm smelling the fragrance of the air. I'm looking at the beautiful plants around me, the clouds in the sky. But anytime I come to a sign, uh, typically an advertisement, that pulls my attention. A and that's ridiculous. Why would I want to waste my time um, serving some corporation reading their advertisement when I could be enjoying this beautiful natural surroundings. And the reason is that uh, written material can potentially contain things that will make my future better. You know, who knows? Maybe there's a free offer. Maybe there's a, you know, a sale on socks or something. So I, I think just the fact that um, we are surrounded by words and signs and our eyes automatically go to them, no matter how trivial or silly they are, um, I think that's one of the more subtle signs of dopamine addiction. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really, really fascinating. Um, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable? Yeah. Well, I think that um, with a person... It is their effort to find their true, authentic self and to pursue that. Um, not to try to be what others expect them to be. Uh, not to try to be someone they think others will admire. Um, but to find out who they truly are and to be that person. Uh, I think it's very difficult. Um, but I think that ultimately, that's the purpose of life. Mm. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough to <clears throat> for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and insights with our listeners. This, as I said, has been beyond fascinating. And I, I knew that I really wanted to talk to you when I read the book. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your books, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Um, I'm at danielzlieberman.com. Uh, lots of information on um, the book and, and some science stuff I've done as well. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.